You're listening to Toe the Line, a podcast by me, Taylor Cleland. Here at Toe the Line, we're talking all things rugby union with a few other sports thrown into the mix, like league, motorsport, tennis, you get the picture. All while pushing the boundaries and making the world of sport more inclusive. I'm ready to use my voice to make impactful change in this world and I hope you'll join me. So let's toe the line together. Hey team and welcome into another episode of Toe the Line, episode 7 this morning, very exciting. As I'm recording right now, the my podcast episode with Ian Jones will be live, so if you haven't listened to that one, make sure you go give it a listen, let me know what you think in the ratings and the comments um, and, and in the reviews and stuff, you know, it was just such an exciting episode to record and I'm so just like so grateful that I was able to have that first kind of interview on my platform and that it was Ian Jones and he's such a legend he's such just not just because he's an old like that he's just such a genuine and lovely and nice and kind person and his insights into you know being an old black and throughout his life and what he's gone through and how he got to where he was and like being able to wear the black jersey was just such a cool chat so I'm really grateful that I got to do that and um you, you know the the response I'm getting from you guys already is super cool and um yeah just super grateful that you guys are all loving it so that's exciting um but on today's agenda we are talking about a couple of different things. Obviously, Rugby World Cup is still happening. Last round of pool play happened. Bathurst 1000 happened. Oh my gosh, it was... Oh, yeah, it was a great six hours. My eyes were pretty sore after <laughs> spending all that time watching the TV. But yeah, epic race. Really excited to get into that one. We're going to be talking about the Rand Furley Shield. Um which has been in the headlines a lot and then obviously we're going to be previewing the quarterfinals but before we get into all of that how are you I hope you've had an amazing week I hope you're taking care of yourself I hope you're being kind to yourself and being kind to one another and yeah just I can't believe that we're like this is my seventh episode already it's kind of crazy but yeah without further ado let's jump into the question of the week my question of the week this week was what do that what do the, sorry, let's start again. What do the All Blacks need to do to beat Ireland in the quarterfinals? Um yeah, super so, so if you uh if you don't know, the All Blacks will be versing Ireland in the quarterfinals this coming weekend and I think it's gonna be a massive game. I'm really excited, I'm really looking forward to it and yeah, I just think yeah, I'm just so excited. But anyway, here are some of the responses that I got. So first response for what do the All Blacks need to do in order to beat Ireland in the quarterfinals is main target is John Johnny Sexton. Need to be disciplined, play our game, don't matter who Fozzie puts out there, we got to back our team. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I think it would be dumb to not target uh, Johnny Sexton in this upcoming game I think people like to laugh and take the piss out of the fact that he's quite old um but I really don't think age matters in this circumstance let alone any circumstance because he is still playing such good rugby like I don't think you guys understand how like I admire him so much for his ability to play such good rugby he's obviously an epic player but yeah I think 
I think you'll definitely want to target him and I think but then again there are so many other good players like for example Gundy Aki I think he has been not just for the Irish team but I think in general over this Rugby World Cup I think he has been such a star player I think I don't know I just think he's such a good player and then obviously you've got James Lowe as well and then um yeah and then I'm just naming all the New Zealand players because I think they're all great and it's such a shame that we weren't able to keep them here in New Zealand because they are such good players but I think the Irish team in general like I said last week just have the x factor at the moment and I think it's going to be a tough game for the All Blacks but moving on to the next answer for what do the All Blacks need to do in order to beat Ireland in the quarterfinals we have four uh, forward that sounds so south southern of me forwards need to turn up um not much else to say about that <laughs> someone commented turn up so I'm not sure whether they mean turn up as in turn up to the game and then we'll automatically win which I do not think will happen or they mean turn up as in <laughs> turn up to play well if that makes sense I don't know anyway I just thought it was funny so I had to add that in next response I got for what do the All Blacks need to do in order to beat Ireland in the quarterfinals I got stop conceding silly penalties hold on to the ball to which um I replied to her and she's come back with yep agree well be super interesting to see them play under pressure because I don't have much confidence in us if we are put under a lot of pressure which is a super interesting take because I think um, even in, so in that French game for, for the opening game of the World Cup we were put under a lot of pressure obviously we didn't win that one but also in that I always come back to that um, Walnut game that Twickenham against South Africa because I think that was a really good a really good testament to what happens with this current All Black side when they are put under pressure and we don't play well and so I'm a little bit nervous do I think we found our feet in this competition 100% I'm a little bit nervous about um yeah just about what will happen if we put under pressure I don't know I think I think we've kind of come into our own in this tournament so I think we should be okay and we'll be able to adapt but you just never know until the game is played <laughs> Next answer I have for what do the All Blacks need to do in order to beat Ireland in the quarterfinals. We have dominate in the forwards and in defence. To which I replied, yep, do you think we can win if we aren't able to play our own game? Like I was mentioning earlier, that's something that I am like mildly on the rocks and concerned about. And they've replied saying, no, we won't win if Ireland won't allow us to play the running game. We can't simply rely on a game plan that requires us to play force back. If we are to win, we need our group we need our forward pack to be ruthless and dominant. <sighs> yeah, it's, oh, I don't know, I'm on edge, <laughs> if you can't tell, about this game coming up against Ireland. I just think it is, if we're able to play our own game and run them around the field, then I think we will be good. I think it will be a really good game. But I think teams like Ireland have researched our game plan enough to know that if they can slow the game down and allow us uh, and sorry disallow us to play our own game and not have possession of the ball and not be able to get territory and all that sort of stuff I just don't see us winning but on the flip side of that if we are able to control and dominate the game and play play the running game which is quite obviously in my opinion what the kind of all blacks game plan is up until this point anyway I think we'll have a good shot at winning but yeah I just don't 
I've had a number of conversations with a number of people and we're kind of all on the same wavelength when it comes to the running game and we're not sure if Fozzie has kind of given any thought to any other game plan which sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud that we just haven't seen much of any other game plan if that makes sense and yeah I don't know it's just an interesting one anyway we've got a couple more for the question of the week um uh next one is unafraid of okay I'm afraid if Fozzie puts Bowden Barrett at full back we're going to be seeing a lot of force back there back there therefore Ireland are going to catch on yeah like I said I've mentioned it a couple of times now I just you just you just like to hope and pray and think that Fozzie knows what he's doing with this game plan and hopefully they've got a backup game plan which I'm sure they do but you just never know because we haven't really seen much of it but um that was question of the week I want to talk about a kind of big headline that's been kind of going around in the rugby space here in New Zealand um and potentially maybe overseas as well but I want to talk about the Ranfurly Shield. For those of you who don't know the Ranfurly Shield is this big log of wood that goes around the NPC teams um, and they can be challenged for it. So the team in question at the moment is the Hawks Bay Magpies and the Hawks Bay Magpies are a team in the Bunnings Mighty Ten Cup, it's not called Mighty Ten Cup, that's always what I refer to it as, but it's like kind of like the NPC game, so for those of you who aren't kind of familiar with New Zealand rugby levels, NPC is the stage below Super Rugby, so it's more like provincial rugby rather than franchise, as in like Blues, Chiefs, all that sort of stuff. Um, so the Ranthurly Shield is a shield that uh, if you, ha- I think, I think, I believe it has to be challenged at least seven times throughout the season and I think that like regenerates every time a new team gets a hold of it so um the magpies the Hawks Bay magpies got this log of wood as they call it or the Ram Daily Shield and uh what kind of essentially happened is it looks like they've said that quote unquote someone dropped it on the cement pavement and it broke um bearing in mind this is a really prestigious piece of wood (laughs) it's like it's a shield and it's prestigious and it's it goes back years and years and people have so much respect and you should have so much respect for this shield and they've dropped it and there was also seen to be some white powder uh in (laughs) in suspicious looking lines on the shield as well and I I have my thoughts on what happened, but essentially, um, I just wanted to talk, talk about it because it is quite a big talking subject at the moment here in New Zealand, and um, Brad Wigger, who's the captain of the Magpies and the head coach, held a press co- conference saying that they didn't know what happened because they weren't there, which um, I think is interesting, but no one is really kind of... I think I, I want to, if you watch the breakdown, um, John Kerwin and Mills Noliana and Jeff Wilson were all asked about the shield and what they thought of it and um, John Kerwin and Jeff Wilson kind of got quite, I'd say like relatively fired up about it. Mills, he didn't really get too fired up about it, I just don't think it's in his personality to do that. But they, they kind of, Jeff and John were both saying that they don't like that people are lying about what happened because it's obviously 
what has come out in the media is obviously not what has gone on behind the scenes and um, I just think yeah I just think it's really interesting what happened and I'll I'll put some clips on the screen or um, if you follow me on Instagram or TikTok I'll chuck some stuff up about it as well but yeah I just thought it was an interesting kind of thing to talk about but um, I also know that in in relation to the kind of um, incident there was also a player from the Hawks Bandit Pies that was caught drink driving and is now in the court system as well so um I thought that was an interesting take as well. That at the end of the day, I was talking to my dad about it actually. And I said to him, I was like, I find it interesting that, you know, you've got these professional rugby players who are going into like the pointy end of their season as in like playoffs, like quarterfinals, semifinals. And here they are like partying and getting drunk and potentially doing drugs. Like that's never confirmed, no, that's never that, that hasn't been like confirmed or denied but I just think it's interesting that these quote unquote professional sporting people are getting drunk off their face at the point end of their season I think in terms of drinking within the rugby kind of space I think it's relatively normal I think it's just it just comes with the territory but I don't know I just think it's an interesting kind of scene and my dad kind of said that you know MPC isn't really professional level footy and all that sort of stuff which I'm not sure if I agree with I think if you're getting paid to play a sport then you're professional in one way or the other and one way or the other sorry and yeah I just think it's interesting what happened and will be interesting to see what happens come when the I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when um, the verdict is given down for that guy who was drunk driving and if the truth will ever come out, we don't know. But anyway, moving on, let's talk about the final round of pool play. Sorry, so yes, final round of pool play for the Rugby World Cup. We had the All Blacks versus Uruguay. Um, I'll be honest, that was on Friday and I'll be honest, I didn't really watch too much of that. I just watched a couple of... A couple of moments here and there. The final score was 73-0 to New Zealand. So nothing really to write home about. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I didn't really expect too much else from the All Blacks given it was Uruguay. And I hate saying that because I sound like, I feel like I sound like I'm being mean or rude. But at the end of the day, Uruguay was always going to be a win for the All Blacks. So yeah that's that on that <laughs> um at half time the score was 26 nil, which I thought might have been a little bit higher I know that they took like a good 15-20 minutes to kind of get the feet moving or like get into the game which I also found interesting considering considering it was against Uruguay but yeah, I mean, a win's a win, last game of pool play, and now they finish second on the table, which means they'll be reversing Ireland next week in, in the corner, quarterfinals, which we'll get into. Um, The one game I did want to talk about, though, was the Ireland and Scotland game. Without sounding rude, I don't know why people were thinking Scotland were going to win this game. Like, I know that sounds bad, and I know that's, <laughs> I don't know, I feel like I'm just 
I feel like that just sounds really big. But without sounding rude, I don't know why people thought Scotland were going to win against Ireland. The The final score for the Ireland and Scotland game was 36-14 to Ireland. And at halftime, the score was 26-0 to Ireland. I... Uh, I mean, the ball never really got anywhere near Ireland's try line. Scotland really didn't have too much ball in hand. Um, I thought Ireland played really well. I think they were always going to play really well. I was talking to someone before this game and they said it was going to be a statement win from the Irish. Do I think it was a statement win from the Irish in this game? Mm, I don't... I don't think so but it was a win's a win they topped the table um so um what I find so obviously the world ranking is still first and Scotland are fifth which is interesting you'd like to I think maybe that's where people thought the game was going to be a bit better but yeah regardless a win's a win for Ireland Scotland are now out of the rugby world cup and um it will be Ireland and South Africa who make it out of Pool B. Um, moving on to the sporting event that I really do want to talk about, and that is the Bathurst 1000. So yes, the one sporting event from the weekend that I do really want to talk about, and that was probably my highlight of the weekend, was the Bathurst 1000. And right from the word go, from qualifying on Friday, it was a bit of a hectic, <laughs> it was a bit of a hectic Bathurst. Um, the one word that I do want to use to describe the qualifying on Friday was hectic and another word would be chaotic. (laughs) The qualifying session on Friday was 40 minutes and within the first 10 minutes the qualifying session was red flagged which means there were two crashes in qualifying which so under a red flag in qualifying it means all the cars have to go back into pit lane. Um the first red flag was Will Brown and the second red flag was Declan Fraser who was a wild card for the weekend. Um, Will Brown kind of did this weird crash at Forest Algo on turn two and it looked like he had like some steering difficulties or steering issues but I think what no one really kind of got any word on what actually happened there and then Declan Fraser had a pretty big one and he I don't I don't think he got back out in that qualifying session um the the top 10 shootout was fast oh my god the top 10 shootout on Saturday was so fast especially across the top of the hill it was loose across the top of the hill oh my god you just I think yeah it was crazy to see how quick they were going and how sort of fluid the car was over the top of the hill I don't think I've seen it be so fluid over the top of the hill over the top of the hill which was exciting um Brody topped the 10 to get pole position Brock Feeney also had an epic top 10 shootout yeah Brody was the quickest in the top 10 which gave him pole um there were I think Brock yeah so Brock um did Brock did an amazing top 10 shootout and we're gonna get into what happened with Brock and it was just like devastating and I'm I feel so sorry for him but um his top 10 his top 10 shootout sorry was amazing and he did really well and um was able to close out that second place on the front of the grid which was really exciting moving on to the race on Sunday um Jamie Wink so obviously Brody was 
obviously Brody was in pole position and Brock was in second, but uh, it was the co-drivers, a lot of the co-drivers started um, on the grid on Sunday for the race. So it was Will, it was uh, Brody Kostecki's co-driver, David Russell, uh, who started in pole division, and then Jamie Winkup, who was Brock Feeney's co-driver, started in second. And Jamie Winkup got a fantastic start and took and took the lead from the start and got a really good gap on the rest of the field. Um, Will Brown also had a good start, moving up five places on the first lap. And the first co-driver change was on lap 15, and that was for Nick Perkett. Um, the start of the race was pretty quiet. You know, you had some moving up and down the rankings and everything like that. Nothing really to write home about. But yeah, that first co-driver change was on lap 15. And I want to touch on something um, that I found really interesting because it was either going to be um, drivers, in my opinion, and from what you kind of saw over this kind of six, seven hours, was that it was either going to be a tyre strategy or a fuel strategy, which you're sort of just like, duh, Taylor, obviously, but I think um, it became clear that you were going to get, it was going to have to be maybe more of a fuel strategy because... Um, you could get more, you could get less laps on fuel than you could out of the tyres. And if you're someone like Shane Langersbergen, who's like a magician with the tyres, then it was always going to be a fuel strategy. Um, the biggest question for this race, which I just touched on, was is it going to be a tyre or fuel race? Roughly 30 laps on the tyres and 20 laps on the in the fuel kind of region was the differential differential can I say that word um and then lap 18 the triple eight car driven by Craig Lowndes had to go into the garage where there was an issue with the car something to do with the gear lever I believe and that was their kind of bathurst over and out which was super sad um car 23 also went off the track in lap 18 but nothing really came of it and that was Jonathan Webb um majority of the cars had their first pit stop by around lap 25 and no one uh, from what I can remember really changed co-drivers apart from that lap 15 with Nick Perkett. The first safety car of the Bathurst 1000 happened on lap 28 and it was Matt Payne's co-driver who went off on turn one um, and racing commenced again on lap 30. SDG took the lead off Ben O'Keefe. Uh, That's I think Dylan O'Keefe, I think his name was. Um, after the restart, top three were Shane, David Reynolds in the Penrite car, and then Brock Feeney also in the Red Bull car. Uh, another safety car on lap 38. Big stuff up for the Red Bull cars. SDG got in first and cha- changed with Stanaway. Brock had to wait, and there was also a double stack up in the pit for the two Erebus cars as well with Will Brown and Kostecki. So the two kind of main teams as in well not two main but the two teams that were kind of leading most of the way were Red Bull and Erebus and they both were having issues with double stacking in the pit lanes because of these safety cars which I thought was interesting I thought you know maybe the strategy might have been a bit different or they might have kind of planned for that but obviously they were happy enough to double stack both their cars which I thought was interesting um Lap 72, this is this is when oh, I was really quite sad about this, but on lap 72, Cam Waters' car had a massive crash, and it was James Moffat who was driving, got it all the way 
um, he got it all the way to the pit, like, pit lane entry and the car couldn't go any further and it blocked pit lane entry, which obviously wasn't great news. And as it turns out, the the Monster Energy car couldn't get back out and Cam Waters and James Moffat were out of Bathurst for yet another year in a row because last year they uh, last year they were unable to finish Bathurst as well, which is just devastating. I think, I think with a race like Bathurst, it can be like the highest highs, but also the lowest lows. So you, oh, you just got to feel for those drivers. Um, coming into the last sixty laps of the race, the top three drivers were Shane Langersbergen in first, Brody Kostecki in second, and Brock Feeney in third. Richie Stanaway is the uh, Shane Langersbergen. Richie Stanaway, Shane Lingerslin's co-driver, drove so incredibly well. Obviously, there's always so much emphasis put on like the main driver in this race, but Richie just drove. I just I don't know how else to say that he drove so well, and I was so happy for him. I I believe he's got actually a main seat next year in the Supercars Championship, which is really exciting. But he just drove so well. He had an incredible Bathurst. And I think that co-driver pairing of Shane and Richie just paid off in dividends. And we'll get into it. But yeah, they just had an, an, an epic Bathurst, which is so exciting. Um, lap 137 is where things started to go down. It was So Bathurst is 161 laps. So on lap 137, like you're so close to the finish line like you're so close you've got maybe just under an hour left so like 137 Brock's gear block, Brock Feeney's gear box failed and had to come into the garage from the second position from second position and you could just see when he got in the cameras were all focused on him and his eyes were tearing up and it broke me in that moment I felt so oh it was just horrible to see it was just horrible to see how devastated he was. He was still in the car. His hands were kind of covering his face, like where his helmet wasn't covering it. And it was just like devastating to see. Um, car 99, Brody's car, had some steering issues that didn't come back into the pit. Um, Brock, Brock's, Brock's car, car number 88, the Rebel Import 88 car, was able to get back out and um, obviously wasn't going to, finish for podium but their kind of um their idea was to get more points which is what like points are super uh points are super crucial obviously in any race but for Bathurst especially but um they got the car back out and then there was still something wrong with it so it had to come back in and I think it got out for like the last five laps of the race so no podium for Brock which was just devastating because he was doing so well like he was honestly I really think that he could have taken it to Shane in those closing laps um because he was driving so well and he was kind of chipping at chipping away at the time difference between him and Brody and him and Shane so I think we were kind of robbed a little bit of what could have happened in that race as well. Um, but when all was said and done, Shane Van Gisbergen crossed the line in first to win the Bathurst 1000 for a back-to-back win. And uh, it was just so exciting to see. I will say, though, he won 
So the gap between him and Brody, who was in second, was 23 seconds. The margin was 23 seconds between Shane and Brody for first and second at Bathurst and on the podium, which I think is relatively unheard of. I can't remember the last time at Bathurst that there was a margin that was that big between first and second uh, to win Bathurst like it was kind of like an uneventful finish and for all the Bathurst races that I've watched and all the kind of ones and in kind of recent years it's always been you know the person who's top of who is in pole position is always under pressure so it was like a super interesting end to the race kind of non-eventful but um regardless it was a Kiwi it was a Kiwi co-driver I think it was the second ever Kiwi co-driver caring to win Bathurst ever which is super exciting so yeah super happy for um Shane and Richie and it's just yeah that's Bathurst 1000 over and out for another year and we've got to wait another 365 days now until the next Bathurst so um, I will be counting down those days on the calendar, you best believe, <laughs> and yeah, I don't know, I think all in all, I mean, there were like two or three safety cars this year, and in all the other Bathurst races that I've watched, there's been at least six or seven, like minimum, so it was like a rather non-eventful Bathurst, which I guess is good, like I'm not saying that we love safety cars, but I think it makes it more it makes it more interesting and kind of puts people's strategies under pressure a little bit. But um, yeah, pretty non-eventful Bathurst. Shane got the win back to back and then he's off to NASCAR at the end of the year. So um, yeah, we'll be sad to see him go. But just I'm just so happy that he got the win. I really wanted him to get the win. So um, yeah, really happy for him and Richie. Right, moving on to some headlines from around the world. Um, first headline from around the world, Simone Biles wins 20th World Championship gold medal as USA Blitzes competition. For those of you who don't know, um, I am obsessed with gymnastics. Why? Because in my delusional head, I believe that I too could be a gymnast. <laughs> um... <laughs> I can't even do a cartwheel I cannot even uh, actually that's a lie I probably could do a cartwheel if I really wanted to um but a little bit of a sidetrack I'm actually I've been doing yoga for like this past maybe just under six months and my goal is to be able to do and hold a hands uh handstand I'm getting there very slowly but these gymnasts like can walk on their hands let alone just do like a basic handstand, let alone do these flips and things and all this sort of stuff. And um, here's me thinking I too can also do that and fling my body around two bars and fly from one bar to the next. But, you know, you've got to believe in yourself and that's what I truly believe. So <laughs> anyway, let's get into this headline. Simone Biles won her 20th World Championship gold medal as the 26-year-old continued her impressive return from the two-year hiatus away from gymnastics, playing a key role in a historic victory for the U.S. in the women's team final. Biles' impressive floor routine ensured the U.S. won its seventh consecutive world title in the women's team discipline at the World Artistic Gymnastics Championships in Antwerp, Belgium. Brazil finished second to earn the country's first ever world championship medal in women's gymnastics with France taking third. Uh, Seven-time Olympic medalist Giles was joined by teammates Sky Blakely, Shalice Jones, Jocelyn Robertson and Leanne Wong in the team final. However, Robertson, who trains with Giles in Texas, experienced heartbreak in the walnuts when she suffered an ankle injury. 
Wong filled the void left by Robert Singh by taking part in the vault and floor. Two apparatus, the 20-year-old, had originally not been expected to compete in. Bars recorded 14.8 in the vault, 14.466 on the bars, and 14.3 on the beam in the first three apparatus. The 26-year-old was the final member of the US team to compete in the floor section, knowing that a big performance would clinch another gold medal for herself and her teammates. Smiling throughout her routine, Giles oozed confidence as she performed her twists and turns with with Ellen with even barely putting a foot wrong as the judges gave her a score of 15.166. The US team combined for a total score of 167.729 points, winning by a narrow margin of just 2.199 points. And a congratulatory on sorry, in a congratulatory message on Instagram, the social media perf- the social media platform USA Gymnastics wrote that US Women's Team was in a league of its own. Um, Vios has, has now won 26 World Championship medals, 20 gold, 3 silver and 3 bronze. Simone Biles is without a doubt the greatest the greatest of all time in terms of gymnastics. She is just a one-of-a-kind athlete, once in a generation athlete, once in like many generational athletes. I think she is incredible. I love her so much. I think her story is amazing. I think the way she is able to, oh, I just think she's just amazing in general. And I do have this um, other article, it's like an opinion piece, and I really wanted to add it in here as well. And it's um, about, um, so it says, gymnast Simone Giles' most enduring move was standing up for herself. Um, it makes no sense to stop a pinwheel from spinning and pull out a single coloured vein for examination just to see how it works. It makes even less sense to talk about Simone Giles' gymnastics in terms of her skill. That's there, yes, but it's the stick to the twirl. When Giles overcame... When, when Giles overcomes physics in the air, it's not a mere matter of technique. Something more phenomenal takes over in order for her to make gravity with such dalliance. Call it harmony. The legacy of the greatest gymnast who ever lived, male or female, and that's what she is after her comeback to win a sixth individual all-round championship at 26 on Friday, is that her will and her imagination are in perfect league with her body. That's what makes her sore, and let it be a lesson to everyone who thinks a young woman champion has to be driven to the point of fracture and self-doubt to become great. Um, what a change in demeanour from Tokyo, where Giles couldn't make herself, mark herself in the air to make a safe landing. Her mind simply refused to cooperate with her limbs mid-competition. She was suffering from the tangle of pushes and anxiety, but no small part of it was the USA Gymnastics seemed to expect her to vault lightly past the years-long abuse of team doctor Larry Nassar and the Caroli coaching regime, and back onto the medal podium to look past the lack of accountability and lead a pack of younger gymnastics with a plastic cooperative smile. Something in her rebelled my mind and my body are simply not in sync, she said at the time. These days, she doesn't compl- complete an interview without proudly talking about her therapy and referencing self-care as the bedrock of her accomplishments, which now stand at 35 Olympic and World Championship medals and counting. I think, I just think she's incredible. I, I mean, you guys probably don't care, <laughs> to be honest, but I just think she truly is such an incredible athlete and... um. 
yeah, just what a woman and what an athlete. And I really hope they get to need to one day. Anyway, moving on. Rugby World Cup. The All Blacks await diagnosis on Tyrell Lomax ahead of quarterfinal. The All Blacks are still sweating on the knee injury to starting tight head prop Tyrell Lomax as they prepare to launch Rugby World Cup quarterfinal week preparations from the base in Lyon. Scrum coach Greg Feek had no updates on the powerhouse prop when he spoke to media early Sunday on what was a day off for Ian Foster's squad. Lomax left the field with, with a suspected medial ligament strain early in the closing pool match against Uruguay, won 73 new it's new, 73 nil by the New Zealanders and is in grave doubt for Sunday's quarterfinal at State Start de France. Is it State de France or Star de France? Someone let me know. Um, uh, they were quoted saying, we're just giving him a bit of time and we'll get together in the morning and reassess with medics and coaches and see how it is, said Feek. We've got an extra few days up our sleeves. I think it's just annoying to get a little niggle or anything. He seemed in reasonable spirits, but we'll wait and see tomorrow. Head coach Ian Foster is expected to update media with the latest on Linux at a scheduled session at 1pm in Leon on Sunday. But fake did... Sorry, but Feek did have some good news around Lucy prop Ethan de Groot, who returns from the two-match suspension after being red-carded for a high hit late in the match against Namibia. The last couple of weeks, he's trained really well, and he's had the opportunity to do some extras, said the scrum guru. He's look, he's looking in a lot better nick than he is than he was, sorry, two and a half weeks ago, so hopefully we, he can put his hand up for selection. We're really impressed how he's taken on board a lot of the work-ons we were rugby gave him around the tackle stuff, and also just around the way the game is going. Um, if Lomax is ruled out as expected, Nico Laulala is the likely tight head starter with Fletcher Newell to provide backup off the bench. Newell went off with a minor knee aggravation late against Uruguay that has been cleared of any injury. Foster will choose between the well-performed offer to Angathasi and DeGroote as his loose head starter with the latter a good chance to to be eased back via the bench after his time off. Rookie Tamaiti Williams is the other left sider in the squad. So yeah, I mean, injuries are just plaguing this World Cup left, right and centre and I mean, there's really nothing else to say. I mean, hope, hopefully Tyrell Lennox is able to play because I think he's a great player, but we'll see what happens. Um, moving on to stuff outside of rugby, Liam Lawson crashes out of Qatar Grand Prix sprint. Sorry, let me start that again. Liam Lawson... <laughs> I cannot speak this morning. Liam Lawson crashes out of Qatar Grand Prix sprint as Max Verstappen seals Formula One title. Um, Kiwi driver Liam Lawson crashed out of the Qatar Grand Prix sprint race on Sunday New Zealand time as Max Verstappen sealed a third successive Formula One title. Lawson, who qualified 18th for Monday's uh, feature race, which will be his final drive to Alpha Tari before Daniel Ricciardo ret- returns from injury, came unstuck on the opening lap after hitting the gravel on turn two. Sergio Perez was another casualty in the 100km race, crashing out after being stuck by Esteban Ocon and being the only driver in the standings who could catch the Stephen. That secured his Red Bull teammate the title. The Stephen started the third but was slow off the line and was in fifth after the first lap before fighting his way through the field to finish second behind the Claren rookie. R- McLaren rookie Oscar Piastri. Verstappen then parked up in the pit lane and stood atop his car with three three fingers raised on his right hand before going to celebrate with his team. Clinching the championship in the sprint race didn't take the emotional impact of his dramatic, controversial last lap overtake of Lewis Hamilton for the 2021 title, but still Verstappen thinks his relentless relentlessly consistent 2023 season has been his greatest so far. I mean, I don't think that's debatable I think he's had an epic season yeah I think for those of you who don't know I 
to be fair, I kind of enjoy watching Drive to Survive, the Netflix series. I don't love watching Formula One as a sport. I think, I don't know, I think maybe because you, I feel so removed from that, I think... I don't know. I'm not sure that's just me, but I just find it a lot easier to watch. Oh, people are going to come for me when I say that. But I find the Drive to Survive series a lot more interesting to watch than the actual race. I think maybe if I put time and effort into actually trying to watch Formula 1, then I'd probably enjoy it more. But I think I really enjoy watching Formula E and Supercars more. But that's just me. Last headline um, for this week is back on the Rugby World Cup, England sleepwalk into last eight with Samoa, Samoa escape. Um, Owen Farrell's verdict was emphatic, in public at least, that was aimed at himself rather than England as a whole. The captain had been asked about the moment deep in the second half when his team was 17-11 adrift when he had lined off the straightforward penalty. With the shot clock ticking down on the big screen, Bernard Bowley's costly dawdling against the All Blacks, knocking around somewhere in his memory and the impetus entirely on England to get on with play inexplicably Farrell was timed out. I was unaware of the clock. I obviously got lost a little, he said. It summed up an England performance that threatened to be a sleepwalk into a nightmare. That afternoon had begun brightly. Um, and the narrative remained wrapped around him. As the Samoan anthem played, he stood to attention, his eyes fixed somewhere up around the stadium rafters. When God heard the king played, he belted out with guts. And when the match started, he was everywhere. That made no sense. But anyway, the match, I believe the final score for that Samoa, actually, I can tell you. I'm not going to. Uh, yeah, the England and Samoa final score was 18-17 to England. Um, England had been interesting throughout this. <laughs> throughout this tournament but yeah anyway moving on that's the headlines from around the world um let's look ahead to this coming weekend and preview the rugby world cup quarter finals <sighs> take a deep breath because i am nervous we are now at the pointy end of this rugby world cup tournament rugby world cup 2023 and tensions are high that's all i'm gonna say but for quarter final one uh, on Sunday, we have Wales and Argentina, and then quarterfinal two, which is the one I am most nervous for, obviously, is Ireland and New Zealand, and that game is being played at 8 o'clock New Zealand time. On Monday morning, at 4 o'clock New Zealand time, we've got England and Fiji, and then quarterfinal four, the final quarterfinal, at 8 o'clock New Zealand time, we've got France and South Africa. Uh, just off the bat, the... Mm. quarterfinal one Wales and Argentina I think I'm going to go and back Wales for that one I think Wales will probably win it I think it might be a little I think the scoreline I think the scoreline I'm going to say Wales are going to put at least 10 points on Argentina that's where I'm going to leave it uh, quarterfinal two Ireland and New Zealand I've got to back New Zealand. I've got to back our boys in black. I I think the scoreline will be very, very close. I think it will be like a matter of two, three, four points at the most. I think it will be very close. I think it will be very low scoring. But we'll see what happens. But I do want to back our boys in black. And I do think that they can win uh, on Sunday. Quarterfinal three, England and Fiji. I'm going to back Fiji in this one. Uh, given that England, and it's not like too much of the same saying, but given that there was only one point in that England and 
uh, Sano again, I really do think Fiji can really give it to England. Yeah, I think Fiji will win. Again, I think it will be really close and I think it will be relatively low scoring, but I do think Fiji can win that quarterfinal three. And then moving on to the quarterfinal four, France and South Africa. Oh, that's a that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. I'm not... <laughs> I really don't know. I really don't know who will win that one. Something in my mind is telling me South Africa might win, but also France. I just, I just really don't know. I don't know who's going to win that quarterfinal four. Actually, if you're listening to this right now uh, or watching this, let me know in the comments who you think is going to win that quarterfinal four because I'd love to hear what you guys think. But I really don't know who will win quarterfinal four out of France and South Africa. I think, yeah, we'll just be a super interesting game. That will be a juicy game, I think. I really don't know who will win that one. Anyway, I'm going to stop trying to think who will win because I've got no idea. Um, but that is it for episode 7 of Toe the Line. <sighs> I won't lie. I It's been an interesting few weeks for me, but <laughs> um, we're getting there. But I've got uh, some really exciting guest episodes coming up, so make sure you stick around for those. Um, thank you so much for listening today, guys. I really appreciate it. We're growing. The numbers are growing. I see I've got like a pretty big New Zealand and Australia audience, but I've also got people listening from Belgium and the United States and Ireland and England. So thank you so much for watching. I see all of you. I am so grateful for all of you and we're only growing and going up from here. So thank you so much for listening. I will see you all again next week. I'll be in your ear holes again next week. <laughs> and um, until then, I will see you then. Take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to one another's. And I will see you next week. Bye. <laughs>